All right, so we are continuing our study in Romans 9, and we've been walking through some very significant verses uh, in Romans 9, 19 through 24. I've given you a handout. It's not the same as last week. I added some things at the back end, but some of the uh, earlier stuff is the same. So I would love it if somebody's willing to read the passage we're going to focus on tonight, verse 19 through 24, and I'll try not to spend too much time in review before we dig into the new thing. So who would like to read Romans 9, uh, 19 through 24 for us? One of you will say to me, and why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? All right, thank you. Um, As I look at the handout that I gave you tonight, I feel like uh, we more or less just uh, lining up with the handout, um, we're midway through page six. So I want to see if I can get through the uh, review more rapidly, and then we'll um, roll up our sleeves and and look at page six. Well, let's just walk through it. Just big picture, the book of Romans is given uh, to enable us to understand the gospel. Uh, The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Uh, Romans one through eight unfolds gospel doctrine in a very powerful and clear way culminating in a sense of absolute uh, security for believers that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Then Paul, as he uh, has a tendency to do, raises up objections to the doctrine. And the objection that could be raised, if you know anything about redemptive history, is what about the Jews? Uh, The Jews uh, were a significant problem for the gospel because the overwhelming majority of Jews were rejecting Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself was officially and finally rejected by the Jewish nation, by the Jewish leaders. He was condemned to death for blasphemy, and they never rescinded that, etc. So he was officially rejected. And we know from John chapter 9 that if any Jew said that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be put out of the synagogue. They would be cut off from the Jewish nation. And so that was the official policy of the, of the Jews. So if you were a Gentile and you're finding out about the gospel and all that, and found this out, it would be a significant problem. You know, why should I believe in a Jewish Messiah when the Jews themselves don't follow him? Uh, But bigger, there's the issue of the problem of God himself. And so Paul brings up uh, the topic about the Jews and their lostness. And as uh, we've mentioned before, he does it with tremendous emotion. It's not an abstract topic for him. It's personal. It's relational. Um, he often speaks of his relatives, you know, uh, like even at the end of uh, Romans and his greetings in Romans 16, he talks about uh, his relatives. So these are Jews. Um, and so he's talking about people who are in his own family that are rejecting Christ. And he understands the significance of that. And then wider, this, these are his people. This is his nation. And he has gone uh, from place to place in every community where there is a Jewish synagogue, the first thing he does is go, it goes in with them and reasons with them from the gospel. So it's a very personal and very emotional problem for him. Uh, there's tremendous sorrow. It was emotional for Jesus because he wept over Jerusalem in that they didn't understand who he was and they rejected him. And so he wept on their behalf. He was not weeping for himself, but for them. 
And so Paul zeroes in on, in verse 3 through 5, we are talking about the Jewish people. And so uh, we're doing specifically for three chapters. Romans 9, 10, and 11 addresses this problem, uh, the problem of the Jews. Paul's immediate concern, however, is not for the Jewish people, but for the reputation of God, and specifically the reputation of God's word. It is not as though God's word had failed. That we can take off the table. It's not that God was trying to save them, trying to do something, and he failed. They proved uh, to be um, stronger willed than him, than him or something like that. That's not it. Because, he says, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. There is a group within the group. There is an elect, a remnant, a chosen uh, a group of the Jews within the larger nation of the Jews. And so he's dealing with sovereign election. And this is significant because he says at the end here in verse uh, 24, not only, uh, even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And he says this repeatedly in the book of Romans. What goes for the Jews goes for the Gentiles. There's not two different things going on here. God doesn't show favoritism. He's, there's one gospel, one savior, one way of salvation. And so what he says about individual salvation here in Romans 9 is extended to the entire human race. And so we have to understand that too. If we are in the end saved, if we are in the end uh, redeemed and spend eternity with God, it is because God chose us from before the foundation of the world for that and worked by sovereign grace. So it's not two different programs, two different plans going on here. Not at all. So um, the focus is on the Jews, but there are principles about personal or individual salvation that are extended to everybody throughout all time. That's the significance of what we're walking through, the doctrine of sovereign election, the group within the group. Principle proves concerning the Jews, just because you're biologically descended from Abraham doesn't save your soul. I mean, anybody who knows anything about Jewish history should know that that's true. I mean, the, the, the Jewish nation was consistently no different than the surrounding Canaanite or Gentile nations. They, they exhibited the same habit patterns. They worshiped the same gods and goddesses. There was no difference. And so just being physically descended didn't, uh, didn't prove anything. And so, uh, but, but in a larger sense, Paul wants to know uh, God's purpose in salvation, God's purpose in election, not by works, but by him who calls. God wants to save sinners from descended from Adam, sinful in Adam, he wants to save them in such a way that in the end and for all eternity, they will give him the glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It said multiple times that we will spend eternity praising God for the glory of his grace. He wants to save us in that way, and that is how he saves us. We are saved because of God, not by works, but by him who calls, namely God. So God wants salvation ultimately to be his work for his glory. And that is, first of all, so it'll happen. All right, if Charles Spurgeon said, if 1% of my salvation is left to me, I will be lost. All right, I don't think he's being overly gloomy. Uh, we know just the, you know, the world of flesh and the devil are so powerful and so, uh, so dominant that if we were just left to ourselves, we would lose. Um, you know, the sermon I wrote, uh, I'm writing this week is uh, Jesus' prediction about all of his uh, apostles falling away that very night. And they all said it wouldn't happen. Peter himself doubled down, absolutely, no chance was he doing that. Hours later, he's denying Jesus. So we should not uh, overestimate ourselves or uh, underestimate the forces that are opposed to us. If God leaves it to us, we'll not be saved. But he wants to save us. He wants our salvation to be guaranteed. The promise is by faith so that it may be big, by grace it may be guaranteed. He wants to be certain that we're there. And so therefore, he has to take over and he saves in such a way. So 
so that we would be humble and that we would actually finally be saved and that God would get the glory. That's God's purpose in all of this. Now, as he uh, brings this up, the case study of, of, of Isaac, not Ishmael, of Jacob, not Esau, uh, physical descendants, genetics doesn't save you. It's not just enough to be born. You have to be born again uh, by the power of the Spirit. He goes through all that. Then he does what he always does, raises objections to the doctrine that he's teaching. Is God unjust? That's the question. Is God unjust? And he says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Has to do with mercy, not, not just, not a matter of justice. He doesn't owe salvation to anybody. And so the issue is uh, mercy. It's a display of mercy. And specifically the case of, um, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. He's quoting uh, from that encounter between God and Moses on the mountain when Moses says very intimately and very lovingly, now show me your glory which I don't think he, even in his, all of his greatness, understood the significance, the eternal significance of that request. Because we understand that in the end, a display of God's glory is what it's all about. It's what heaven is about. A full display of God's glory is a heavenly reward. And so for Moses to, to say, show me your glory, though he may not have fully understood that, he's saying, take me to heaven. Let me be immersed in a sea of your glory for all eternity. And God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'm not going to do that necessarily for, and not any, anyone is owed this self-disclosure, God's disclosure. That's something he doesn't owe that to anybody. He gives it by mercy, not by justice. So it's not, it's no, God is not unjust because this is a matter of mercy and he doesn't have to show himself to anyone. So salvation can never be ultimately by human works or by human will or human anything, but by God who has mercy. It doesn't come down to human works or human will, but on God who has mercy, as he openly says. Um, in verse 16. On the other hand, then, he brings in Pharaoh as a paradigm example. Moses, a paradigm example for the elect, and Pharaoh, like Esau, a paradigm example for the non-elect, or also known as reprobate. And so um, Esau and Pharaoh are this, basically the same type, the same kind of thing, though they're different individuals. And it, is, it is true, too. I mean, Esau wasn't some tyrant. He wasn't some dominating, you know, whatever. He was a good-time guy. He just liked a good meal. He liked a good time. He didn't care about his birthright. He just cared about a bowl of stew. Uh, Pharaoh's a different kind of person, uh, but they're just uh, different aspects of the same issue, which is a display of the reprobate. So he raises Pharaoh up for this purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is the central idea and concept we're going to study tonight. Why does God create the reprobate at all? What is his purpose? Is there a reason for it? God has a reason for everything he does. And the reason is going to come down to display. I could put it that way. Uh, putting himself on display. They exist to put God on display. Aspects of God's character are put on display because the reprobate exist. And he says that to Pharaoh, and he's going to say that again in the verses we're going to study tonight. Uh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God does it to make a great name for himself. He openly says this multiple times in Psalms and he says it himself. He does all this to make a name for himself, to make a great name for himself. And why is this? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so that God would have a great name um, connected with great deeds um, great works. Um, that is the greatness of the name of God, and it is that name that uh, people 
call on. And so God wants his name to be made great throughout the earth. And he's going to say openly in the next chapter in Romans 10, the reason is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? So that's God's strategy is to get messengers of his great name to go to the ends of the earth and proclaim his fame and his glory, as he says in Isaiah, to make his name known so that people hearing of that will call on that name and be saved. Now, we know in Romans 10, the name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So the greatness of the name of Christ is the focus point of salvation. And Christ's deeds are even greater than those of Moses or done by God around the time of the Exodus, etc. But it's all the same thing, display. God's putting himself on display so that we can be saved. So that's uh, what he's getting at in verse 17. And he sums it up. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy or wills to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden, literally from the Greek. Therefore, on whomever he wills, he has mercy, and whomever he wills, he harden, hardens. So that's, it just comes down to that. It's an overt statement of God's sovereignty. Now, what we need to understand is any attempt that we would make to understand, to harmonize, to try to understand free will and all that, What's going on in Romans 9 is a display of absolute sovereignty by Almighty God. That's what Paul is doing in Romans 9. So we can understand other aspects and we can try to harmonize, but that's what Paul is doing here. It's all about God. It's all about God's will. It's about God's mercy. And again, what is the problem he's trying to address? Why is it the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Christ? This is his answer. And it's stunning to us. It's the kind of thing that could shock us. Like, wow, you know, that seems, seems difficult to accept. And Paul knows that. So he uh, raises up uh, this next objection. I brought up Judas Iscariot. He's also coming up soon in, in our Mark study uh, where Jesus says um, it would be better for him if he had never been born. And, you know, that's the kind of thing you can just read right over. But if you understand anything about God and, and his intentions and all that, it is not an accident Judas was not an accident. Judas was in, intended by God for a purpose, but it wasn't best for Judas. So it's a very striking thing. All right, so the objection is raised. Why, did, why does God then send anyone to hell? So ultimately, why does God blame us for who resists his will? The blame us isn't just, you know, kind of finding fault day to day, et cetera. It's blame us ultimately, find fault with us ultimately on judgment day. Why does God con condemn anyone for... Looks like what you're saying, Paul. God's sovereign will wins, right? So that's the doctrine he's laying out. If, if no one resists God's will, then why does anyone get sent to hell? So that leads right toward the concept of universalism, etc. So verse 19, that's the objection. If God is all-powerful over salvation, why does anyone go to uh, hell? He can do anything he wants with human hearts, all right? Underlying assumptions of this objection, as an objection to the doctrine are, first, Paul is teaching absolute sovereignty of God over salvation, and that would nullify human responsibility. Doesn't seem fair, then, for anybody to be sent to hell if God can do anything he wants. Those are the, the root causes of the objection that he raises. But it also is an indication we're on the right track understanding Paul's doctrine, because that, at least the first part, is in fact what he's teaching but he does not thereby nullify human responsibility. Not at all. Judas is accountable and responsible for what he does. All right, so God then uh, begins by rebuking 
human arrogance. We talked about this last time. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Uh, It's a rebuke. You are human. You're a creature. God is the creator. You have no right to answer back or push back or talk back to God. It is one thing, as we said last time, to ask God a question. It is a different thing to question God. Um, and there's a vast difference between the two. And that's what's being rebuked here. Who are you to talk back to God? Do you know what you are? Do you understand that you're a creature? Do you understand the infinite gap between you as creature and God as creator? And the implication, the sense here is you have no right to think of yourself as an equal disputer with God. It's just not who you are. And as I said last week, if God showed up in theophany glory, you'd know it immediately and you'd be on your face. All right. As uh, it says in Job 13, would not his majesty terrify you? Yes, it would. So shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Now he brings up this issue, the forming, the shaping of uh, the the character. We are uh, creatures. God is the creator and arrogantly arguing with God is Satan like. So we have to come to this humbly as as he says plainly in isaiah 60 uh 6 2 i think this is the one i esteem he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word you come at it like that and god will bless you with wisdom if you come at it trying to disprove or refute or you know whatever god is here in the text rebuking you so there's a sense of reverence that we use to come to this and we're also creatures we should not expect that we're going to come to a perfect understanding of all these things I think the rent comes due on this in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, talked like a child, reasoned like a child. That's all of us in this room. We should expect to think like children when it comes to doctrine. There's going to be certain uh, you know, aspects of this that we're just not going to understand. But we will do our best to come to, uh, fully to Scripture. There are theologians, including Philip Melanchthon and others, that said, why do we even talk about election predestination? All it does is create arguments. Um, etc. But the answer is it's part of the treasure trove of truth that God has given us in the 66 books of the Bible. He didn't have to tell us this at all. And even in this chapter, after rebuking us, he goes on uh, rebuking, questioning those among us that would question God. He goes on to give more information. He goes on to give more insights. And this ties back, I think, to Genesis 18, the statement that God makes within himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Right? Remember that? Shall I hide from Abraham? What, what was he about to do? Destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That seems relevant here. God wants us to understand his reasons. And he wants to reveal himself to us because he loves us. And that's part of salvation is to know him, uh, to know his mind, to know his heart, to understand his reasons. But we have to do it humbly. That's what he's saying. All right. So we are uh, creatures. God, the creator. Is God on trial? Well, yes and no. All right. <laughs> Uh, he's certainly on trial here on earth, right? You know how it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And yet God is mocked every day. All right. So how do we understand that? God isn't taking it to heart. (laughs) I mean, he's, he feels sorry for the mockers and the blasphemers because they're going to be punished if they don't repent from it, but it doesn't unseat him from his throne. He's not deeply troubled by it up there as we're mocking him, he's heard it every day of redemptive history. 
Psalm 2 says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs at the opposition. It's not troubling to him, except in that he's compassionate toward us. So God is not also on trial. We don't have the power to pull God before the justice bar. God is the one on the justice seat. He's, he is the definition of justice. And so Nebuchadnezzar had it right when he says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. You see that? He does what he wants. And nothing, no public opinion is going to change him from doing what he wants. And we are going to see in heaven that what God wants is right. What God wants to do is perfect and righteous and good and holy. And we will see that in heaven. Um, and then he says, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So that means God is not accountable to anyone. Does that make sense? What is the significance of that statement? God is not accountable to anyone, not to any archangel, not to Satan, not to any creature. What is the significance of that statement that God's not accountable? Okay. If we were to demand an explanation from God, think about that. That's what it means to be accountable, right? Oh, where would that go? The whole, I demand an explanation. What are your thoughts on that? Is God going to give you one? Maybe. Uh, he does sometimes through the prophets. He didn't give Job any explanation. Did Job demand an explanation? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> we walked through all that. I mean, I can show verses where it sure sounds like he wants an explanation. Remember how he said, I would, I would, have, I would sit him down and ask him a question or two. And then God turned the whole thing around and said, I, you know, I'm going to talk and you're going to answer me. That's what's going to happen here. So no, God, isn't, God, God does not respond to that. He does not, he does, it does not owe us an explanation. He's not accountable to us. All right, so God's role. We are the... Uh, he is the potter, we are the clay. We are shaped. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? So the idea here is the shapeable nature or the moldable nature of human beings. The Greek word is plasma here. Something that is molded, something that is soft, something that is plastic. Humans are molded, they're shaped, they're fashioned. That points to our changeability. We are not what we will be. We're in process. We're being changed. God is not like that at all. God never changes. But we are influenced. We're influenced by conversations that we have. We're influenced by training as we grow up. We're influenced by books that we read. We're influenced by experience. It shapes us. It molds us. And there's that sense here in these verses that God is doing that. He's shaping. He's molding people for, uh, for a purpose, vessels of glory. Uh, but he's the one doing the molding. He's the one doing the shaping, the crafting. All right, and ultimately, first in salvation, he is shaping us and conforming us to Christ, right? He is making us like his son, Jesus Christ. He is shaping and molding us in that way. And we're not there yet. Have you noticed? All right, we are not perfectly conformed to Christ, not in our heart and soul and mind and not in our bodies. Our resurrection bodies haven't happened yet, but that's what our salvation is. We're being conformed to the likeness of his son. And so the potter and clay image. So what does form say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purpose and some for common use? 
So the key distinction here, Martin Lloyd-Jones helped me to think this through, is not God as original creator ex nihilo, God creating everything out of nothing, but rather understanding God as shaping and molding sinful humanity given the effect of sin, sinful humanity, into vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. God doesn't create anyone evil. All right, Everything God made, we're told in Genesis 1, is good. Everything God made was good. Um, so, And I, I don't deny that this is a great mystery of Christian theology, the, the great unanswerable question, how an omnipotent, perfectly good and loving creator could preside over a universe that had evil enter in in some mysterious way. It is a great mystery without him being the author of evil. That is a difficult question. I don't have an answer. And I'm glad to know that I've thought about it, read about it, and know that there is no answer. All right? But I do know this. God is not the author of evil. And God hates it. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. So he doesn't shape and mold people to be evil. That's not what he does. Um, but uh, he created Adam perfectly good in his image and likeness, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned with him. We became cursed and corrupted. This is the doctrine of original sin. The whole human race is this massive lump of sinful clay. All right? Not shaped uh, or made sinful by God. God doesn't make anyone evil. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God does not tempt anyone. Uh, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. He doesn't pull or drag or or draw people to do evil things. That's not who he is, all right? Lloyd-Jones put it this way. It is as though God found this disgusting pile of rejected stinking clay of no value, wrecked and defiled by evil, and chose to do something with some of it. He chose to take some of that lump, that defiled and evil pile of useless clay, and fashion it into the perfect image of his son. But he did more than that. He chose to give the rest over to the desires of their evil hearts, to harden them and confirm them in their rebellion. He gave them over to what they wanted to be. He could have saved them all. He could have exerted his sovereign power in an awesome way and transformed them, but he chose not to. So God doesn't craft everyone for glory. Some are vessels of dishonor and and some are vessels of glory, all right? And God has the right to do this. Could someone read for us verse 21? Basically where we were last time, the review is over, but verse 21, somebody read that. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? All right, so Paul in verse 21 is bringing up the potter's rights. He has the right to do it. Does that make sense? The, the word power can be uh, two senses. Uh, ability, the ability to do something, the ability to, to make it happen. And the other is the right to make something happen. This is the, the senses, the right. He has the right to do what he wants with what he's made. That's the Greek word here. And then um, the potter has the right. He has every right to do what he wants with the clay. And then Paul says the same lump of clay. All right, this is really important. That same lump of clay is sinful humanity. As Lloyd-Jones talked at this disgusting pile of rejected stinking clay of no value. Um, Out of that same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use. So there's no, originally, before God starts working on us in redemption, there is no difference one to the other. 
right? There's no intrinsic quality or characteristic that God was looking for that made that pile of clay useful and the other one not. That's the significance of verse 21, same lump of clay. We start from the same place. That's what he's saying. Um, God can do whatever he wants with the putrid pile of sinful human clay. He can reject it all as he did with the demons, right? There's no salvation plan for demons, right? There is no gospel for demons. There's no chance for them to be redeemed, all right? It's amazing that there is one for humans because we joined the demons and Satan in their rebellion, the same rebellion. We joined them and there is a plan for some of us, but there's no plan for any of the demons. God could have rejected everyone. All right. Uh, he could have transformed all of it into fine China if he had wanted to. He's totally within his rights no matter what he wants to do. Same lump of clay highlights the unconditional aspect of election. He didn't look at the clay and say, now here's something I can work with. Here's something that makes that clay not so, quite so bad as the rest. All right. So why is that important for us who are Christians to understand? That God didn't look at one section of the big pile of clay and say, now this part isn't so bad as the rest. I can work with this. Don't think of it that way. Why is that really important for us as Christians to know that? We have no pride in this. So it's humbling. You realize you're not coming from that section of the pile of clay that was the good part, right? Because God found something in you that was attractive to him. That's not it at all. And again, it goes to God's purpose of humbling us. He doesn't want us to think that way. And so verse 21, same lump of clay does that. It's very humbling, all right? As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So everyone starts out worthless on that list, all right? That's clear. That's Romans 3. Everyone is, you know, under that same word, worthless, all right? And then God chose to do something astounding because when he's done, we will not be uh, worthless, all right? The, the Greek word teme, uh, honor, um, vessel of honor, there is a worth and value to the redeemed when God is done working on them. They have tremendous worth and value. Again, I'm not minimizing the worth and value of being human, you know, like sanctity of human rights and all that, that kind of thing. I, I, I think... That's not what we're dealing with here, all right? The, the thing is, before God, we are rejected. Before God, we're sinful. All right, so let's zero in on this phrase, pottery for noble purposes, literally vessels of honor, vessels of honor. God has the right to take the stinking wicked clay and transform some of it into a vessel in which he will put in something of immense worth, value, and honor. And what is that? Well, it goes to the ultimate answer always, his own glory. God puts his own glory in that vessel of honor. All right, he, he, he makes us glorious with his own glory. As Romans 8, 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. NIV alone, well, not alone, but I think of all the major translations keeps um, the word in, in us. All right, the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, the Greek could also uh, go to us that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Well, it's all true. Uh, we are going to see glory around us in the new heaven, new earth, right? That is true. 
But later in that same chapter, it says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, conformed to the image of his son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, what? He also glorified, made glorious. So I think that's a better translation. Our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the work God's doing in us to make us radiantly glor uh, glorious. And that's what we're going to be. We're going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And again, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Could someone read that for us right off the page? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is all right, so as we're beholding the glory of Christ, beholding means seeing, which is faith. By faith, we see the glory of the Lord, Lord being Jesus. We see the glory of the Lord Jesus. We are transformed into that same image. We are made more and more like him. And the Greek literally says, from glory to glory. From glory to glory. So if you're a Christian, you're already glorious, but you're going to get more glorious. You're going to go more and more and more glorious in this life through sanctification and then quantum leap at death and at the second coming through glorification. And so you will be glor glorious. That's vessels. That's what I mean by vessels of honor. That's, that's the honor. It's the, the glory of God. And then, uh, by contrast, we have pot pottery for common use. He also has the right to take the same stinking wicked clay and fire it in a kiln of hard hardening to make it a vessel of dishonor, a vessel that doesn't have the glory of God. And again, that lines up with um, Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and, remember the rest? Fall short of the glory of God. Well, the word fall short, hustereo, uh, could mean lack. They don't have the glory of God. They don't show the glory of God directly. All right? And that's, that's I think, what he's saying is you don't have the glory of God, and you're not going to have the glory of God, not in that sense. Uh, this is in keeping with the clay's own nature and bent. The clay yearns for it, begs for it out of sinfulness and stony ignorance. God has the right to do it. All right, now why? What is the reason? What is the reason for all of this? All right, well, look at verse 22 and 23, and I've highlighted um, this display language. This is very, very important. God does all of these things to put himself on display. And uh, the glory of God, I've uh, defined many times before, I'll say it again, is the radiant display of the perfections or attributes of God. And I did an attribute sheet. There's like 25 attributes, 26 attributes, something like that. So that would be mercy, justice, power, wisdom, love, etc. There are different aspects of God's personality, and God, by weaving together providentially a complex history, a human history, with these vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath, there are displays of God's character woven through all of that, ultimately in heaven and hell as well. But it's all got to do with display, and this is very strong display language here. Do you see it? Can someone read it? 22 and 23? Okay, so I've highlighted, thank you, I've highlighted the, the display language. You see it? God is choosing to show his wrath. He wants to show it. Like, this is what wrath looks like. Um, and make known his power. Now you see my power. You can see the power of God. Definitely can see that in the 10 plagues, right? And the Red Sea crossing. Red Sea crossing especially. 
I mean, what happened to Pharaoh's army? If that's not a display of power, I mean, I once did calculations in the amount of strength it takes to withhold that depth of water. I mean, but that's my geeky engineering side, but that was a lot of power to make, cut a path through the, through the sea and they go on dry ground. That's power, right? Well, there's other displays of power, but at any rate, power. Uh, show his wrath, make known his power, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make known the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy? So there's show, make known, and then again, make known. But then look at the attributes. There's a handful of attributes just listed in these verses, right? Do you see them? What are some of God's attributes or perfections listed here? Power. Power. Wrath. Patience. And, well, glory is the big overarching umbrella term. Mercy. So there's four, four displays of his glory here um, in this whole thing. And we know that there's others as well. So the whole thing is for display. God is putting himself on display. Now, first of all, just notice this is after the human race has been rebuked for talking back to God, right? You want to know an answer? You want answers, right? Well, who are you to talk back to me? So we get rebuked and then God goes on and gives us answers and more information. That's because he's into self-disclosure. He wants to explain himself. He has reasons for what he does. He just wants us to be humbled. So God gives us uh, amazing grace in answering and giving, giving us explanations. He could have just cut off all discussion, said, because I'm God, that's why. And, and we'd be like, all right, you know, there's nothing more to say. Um, but instead he explains. Um, and again, God's reason for everything from the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth was this, a display of his glory. And why is that? Because God is generous to us in particular. God wants to give gifts to us. He wants to give us, <laughs> I don't want to minimize it, but he wants to give us a good time. I mean, a really good time. And that good time is heaven. And he's the center of that good time. He is the feast. He is the beauty. He is the reward. He, and why is that? Because he's such a full being. He wants to overflow into us. Appreciative recipients. That was his reason for creating everything to begin with. A display of his glory. God made everything for that purpose. And then he unfolded history also for that same reason. So we see God's glory in creation, physical creation. The heavens are telling the glory of the God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, right? And you see God's glory, you know, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's all creation, right? Creation glory, it's everywhere. But there's even more glory, if you know what to look for, in redemptive history, in providence, in God's actions in human history. But we need to be trained to see it properly. We have to look at it properly. And so that's the whole thing. God did all of this. He unfolded history for the display of his glory. Um, but maximally, more than anything else, he displays it in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So in Jesus' incarnation, his perfect life, his miracles, his teachings, his death on the cross, his resurrection, single greatest display of glory there ever will be is a radiant display of God. Anyone who's seen him has seen the Father. That is the central display of glory. Jesus, and he came because of our sin and, and the need for redemption. And then God's glory is put on display in both the vessels of honor and the vessels of dis dishonor. He, he is glorified in both. There is a display of glory in the one and in the other. So that's the answer why. 
so that God could put himself on display in the two types of vessels. All right, now the word vessel, it's like a kitchen container, you know, something that holds something, right? Like a, a container. Um, so uh, we are vessels. We, we humans are vessels. We hold, like you could picture like holding a liquid or something like that. It is interesting that Solomon said, heaven, even the highest heavens cannot contain God. There's no container for God because there's no boundaries to God. He's an infinite being. But we are, to some degree, vessels or containers, and God can pour uh, of himself into that. So that's what the word vessel means. And he talks about two categories, vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, also vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, vessel of wrath, vessel of mercy. God does all of this for the display of his glory. Now, there's one type of glory shown in the elect, and there's another type of glory shown in the reprobate. But that's his reason why. That's why Judas was made. That's why he was knit together in his mother's womb, for a display of God's glory, but in a different way than why Peter was made or John. Um, so there's different vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. All right, how is God glorified in the vessels of wrath? So Paul gives us, as, and he does this often, he'll begin a thought and not really complete it, all right? Um, but you know what he means. He does it in, in, um, in, in Romans 5 with Adam, right? You know, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin, for before the law was given, sin was, and off he goes. It's like, well, we're waiting for the just as, we're waiting for the so also, well, it never really came except later we get what the so also is. One Adam, two Adams. So we get it. It's not like he doesn't complete the thought. He just doesn't complete the verbiage. You know what I'm saying? We're expecting just as so also. He does the same thing here. Does the same thing here. All right. What if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, dot, 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 and off he goes. Well, what's the rest of the thought? Well, there are different ways of looking at it, but the, the rest of the thought is, should we think poorly of God if he does that? I think that's probably a good way to complete the thought. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, da 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 should we therefore think poorly of God? I think that's the idea. Should we charge him with injustice? Should we say there's something wrong with his approach if he does that? I think it was John Piper that Lincoln linked it to Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, which is really quite remarkable. And there he kind of ruminates over God's providence concerning slavery in a way that I can't imagine any politician doing today. All the trouble such a rumination would get you into. But he openly does that. You should read it, second inaugural. All right? More famous for with malice toward none, with charity for all, et cetera. That's the famous part. But he ruminates over slavery. And he says, you know, if, if in, the, in the providence of God, he allows slavery to come and now is punishing both the North and the South for it, and, uh, you know, et cetera, if God, if that's what, you know, but he completes the thought, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God have always ascribed to him? In other words, should we think poorly of God? That's what Abraham Lincoln said. I think that's the same concept here. Now, do people tend to think poorly of God when they walk through Romans 9? It's at least a possibility. Or they think poorly of people who teach it. <laughs> like it's somehow their fault. It's like, look, I didn't write Romans 9. I'm with you. I'm trying to walk through this and understand it. But you can get in trouble. 
for teaching this kind of stuff. I think it'd be kind of cool for me to go to an average Southern Baptist church and be an interim pastor and go right to Romans 9 and see what would happen. It's like, <laughs> what fun we would have, all right? <laughs> it's like, what in the world was that, you know? <laughs> so kind of have to work up to it at any rate. Um, no, I mean, there, there is a tendency to think poorly of all this and, and you know, what if God, et cetera. I think that's the concept here. Uh, shall we um, discern therein any departure from God's goodness or his wisdom, his holiness, if that's what he does? Not at all. All right, uh, so what does God display in vessels of wrath? Well, we already said it. Wrath, power, and patience, all right? The vessels of, of wrath, the reprobates, are fashioned in part for a display of those three attributes, all right? Now, there are others that Paul could have mentioned. Jesus mentioned that God loves his enemies, right? Loves his enemies. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's a display of glory, right? Is how kind and patient God is toward his enemies. He's very generous toward people who hate him. And he gives them incredible gifts, right? But Paul doesn't list that, uh, but it is at least in, in mind. So how does he... How does he uh, deal with vessels of wrath? Now, before we go on, I didn't really uh, unfold this, but how do we see a display of wrath in the reprobate? Paul says that's why they exist. How are the reprobate a display of God's wrath? Do you see God's wrath at work in Judas's life? Well, what happened to Judas? I mean, in the end, what was the final outcome for him? Why? Yeah, he felt terrible. He felt guilty. So he goes to his new friends who gave him the 30 pieces of silver and found they weren't friends at all, right? What's that to us? See, it, you know, he said, I betrayed innocent blood. Remember that? He didn't want the money. And they said, we don't care. Do what you want. I mean, they, they had zero compassion for him. So he threw the money into the temple, went out and hanged himself. And, uh, and then in Acts 1, his place is, is, is taken by another. Uh, they took his place, and he said he went to go where he deserved to go. Jesus called him a son of perdition, etc. There's a display there of wrath in just in terms of the outcome. It also says in Acts 1 that his bowels uh, broke out. So I think the way you harmonize that, if both of them are true, is he hanged himself, maybe a branch broke, and he fell some great distance and landed on some rocks, and his intestines came out. So it's a terrible display, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but I have more to say about that display. Um, his power, all right. How does God put his power on display in the reprobate? Well, let's take Pharaoh. He's a prime example. Do, do we see God putting his power on display in Pharaoh's life? I hope you, you do. <laughs> okay. Not in Pharaoh's life, around Pharaoh's life. Yeah, but I mean, all right, let's take Pharaoh's kind of final act in the drama. What was the last thing Pharaoh did? Went after the Israelites where? At the Red Sea, right? Because he thought poorly of God's generalship, because he had put his people up against the sea where there was no escape. 
And he's got all this powerful. So, so what's happening? Well, the Bible tells us what happened. God hardened his heart one more time, remember? So he goes in after them. That was the last we saw of Pharaoh. Now, I don't know if God let Pharaoh live and his whole army die, or if Pharaoh died with them. It's unclear in the text. I don't know. All right, it could, it could go either way. But it'd be really interesting if he let him live. Imagine going back to the halls of power with no army and what that was like. So if you know what to look for, there's all kinds of displays of, of, of power that happens where God orchestrates and uses wicked people to do great, um, great things for his own purpose. And we could walk through this, but I want to get back to display at the end. And then patience as well. God puts up an awful lot. Blasphemy every day, uh, hatred, defilement. I mean, God could strike people dead immediately for all kinds of things, but he's very, very patient. All right, so how, God, how does God deal with vessels of wrath? Well, first of all, he creates them. All right, he shapes them in their mother's womb. Let's realize he, it's not a special way that, that reprobate get conceived and gestation and all that. It's all the same thing, and God is directly involved in fashioning human beings in the womb, wombs of their mothers. All right, God knits them together in their mother's womb. There's, it's, many verses teach this, and that includes the reprobate. Keep in mind, the, act, the direct action of God, the whole time he's doing that, he knows what about them while he's fashioning their bodies? That they're reprobate. He knows very well what's going to happen with them. We know that, right? And yet he gives them bodies that are fearfully and wonderfully made. He gives them circulatory system, digestive system. He gives them fingers and gives them all of this thing. And that is all a gift. It's a good thing to have a body. You know, ordinarily would say that. He lavishes, therefore, goodness on, on them. In James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Every good thing they ever experienced came from God. When they sin, he withholds his just punishment from them for a season. All right? So he doesn't immediately smack them. He doesn't strike them down. He is patient with them. Right? Patient. He records, however, every careless word they have ever spoken, every single deed, thought, and all that in his books, the record books. Everything they've done is recorded. Uh, and based on Romans 9, he hardens them. All right? He limits the damage uh, that they do. He controls the effects of their evil. They're channeled in. There are boundaries for them, like the hedge of protection. Remember that? How Satan is frustrated they can't get at Job. I think the wicked, the reprobate, the same thing. He hems them in. So they can't just run amok and do whatever, all right? But he hems them in, all right? He uses uh, their deeds, both good and evil. I, and I think in the nuclear age, have you ever wondered why some terrorist group hasn't blown up a thermonuclear device? I mean, it's in a lot of stories. It just hasn't happened in history. And I think we must say as Christians, God has restrained them from doing it one way or another by intelligence where people their their cells get exposed or something like that or but he just stops them from doing it because that's not part of his plan all right he uses their deeds both good and evil to fur further his purposes in this world he justly takes their lives from them the death penalty for the sin one thing that i didn't mention is the wrath of god in romans 1 is involved in giving them over to what they want to do that's openly called wrath he lets them be immoral, right? He doesn't resist their immorality. He gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done, and that's openly called wrath. So he lets them run amok in that uh, uh, sense. 
Um, so, but that's, it's wrath, but he just lets them do what they want. All right. All right. Then justly takes their lives from them, the death penalty for sin. He judges them with perfect just, uh, justice on judgment day, destroys them eternally in hell. Um, but he does not regenerate them by his sovereign grace. He doesn't take out the heart of stone and give them the heart of flesh. He doesn't do that. He withholds that grace from them. All right, well, how are they prepared for destruction? Well, this is interesting grammatically. It says, what if God, uh, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, this is a different translation, has endured with uh, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? All right, I chose that different translation because, um, well, let me talk about prepared, and then we'll talk about the verb tense. All right, prepared. Um, in every other uh, uh, case, it has a positive meaning. Um, it's like a shaping. Uh, like when the disciples were mending their nets, arranging them for use, like what God did in creating and arranging the world in perfect order. So it's fitting, preparing, arranging, perfecting, accomplishing of an end purpose. They are prepared, it says, for destruction, all right? Uh, they're perfectly arranged, trained, prepared, shaped on, etc., shaped for destruction. What is uh, destruction? It's ultimately hell, but it's a life of destruction or a life of rebellion, now, I think uh, at this point, a vessel of wrath we should understand in light of Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we also all once lived in the passions of our flesh, but uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. So there's something about their nature that attracts wrath. Does that make sense? It's just attractive to wrath. It's like it's begging for it. Um, begging for wrath. So I thought of it similar to a lightning rod, which is designed in terms of its material, its shape, and its position on the building, designed to be the path of least resistance for the static electricity that surrounds the lightning strike. It, so if it, it, you, can't, you shouldn't really say it attracts lightning, but from our, for our perspective, that's about what's happening. It's begging for a lightning strike. If there's going to be a lightning strike, hit this thing. So that's the image that I get of um, vessels of wrath or by nature children of wrath. So they're prepared for destruction, uh, which ultimately is hell, as Jesus said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. All right. Who prepares? Who does the preparing? Who does the shaping for destruction? Well, everyone agrees that the devil's involved in that. I mean, by his temptations and by all of his wickedness and evil and by the world system that he created, he's preparing them for hell. And he wants to do that. He's preparing them for that. Everybody agrees they're preparing themselves for hell by their own choices. Where the debate comes is, is God actively preparing them for, for hell? How do we understand God's role? One thing that is important to notice, it doesn't come out so clearly in the translation, but it is... Uh, if you know what to look for, it's there. There is an indirect voice here in terms of uh, the verb, all right? Uh, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for, dis prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Do you see the difference between those two uses of the word prepared or preparation? What's the difference? Just prepared. Doesn't say who does it. And who does the preparation for glory in the second one? 
Yeah, he, and we all know who the he is. So God is directly, energetically, actively working on the vessels of mercy, getting them ready for heaven. It is a direct activity of God through the Holy Spirit on them. That language isn't used for the vessels of destruction. It seems to be a more of an indirect. The Greek grammar is passive. So on the one hand, God is actively preparing the vessels of mercy for glory by the direct means at his disposal. The means fitted to the end. The preaching of the gospel is meant to bring us to repentance and faith, and, and the elect it does, and all the other workings of the Holy Spirit preparing us for eternity in heaven. But the subject of the verb is left out for the vessels of wrath. They're just prepared for destruction. All right? So the language Im- implies that God acts more indirectly in the preparation uh, of vessels of wrath. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's more like God kind of gets out of the way and lets the wicked pursue their own evil desires. God does not actively lure the person at any moment to do evil. So how are they prepared for destruction? By God hardening them. By not regenerating them, to some degree, God causes all things to work together for their destruction in that sense. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The wickedness of the unregenerate heart is such that anything God does will perversely harden them and tend toward their destruction. The same blessing that causes thanksgiving in the elect can cause idolatry and excess and sensual indulgence in the non-elect. For example, wealth. All right, Is wealth a blessing or not? Well, for the elect it is, and for the non-elect it isn't. And we're going to see this when we come back in, in Romans 11 with a very interesting quote from David from a psalm in which it says, uh, God gave them over to a spirit of stupor, eyes so they cannot see and ears so they cannot hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened forever and their eyes be darkened and their backs be bent forever. That's an interesting statement, a curse. May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution. What is the word table? Their goods? Their health? So wealth, or wealth, definitely. I think it relates to the 23rd Psalm, such as you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What does table represent in the 23rd Psalm? Prosperity, blessing, feasting, right? But in that, it's a snare to them. You see what I'm saying? Is it possible that somebody's wealth could be the means by which they're hardened for destruction? Obviously so. But let me ask another question. Is it possible that other people's poverty is the way by which they're hardened and prepared for destruction? Yes. Through what? Where the one, it's avarice and idolatry and arrogance, right? And covetousness and all that. On the other side bitterness, uh, theft, right, uh, and covetousness. Right? You can covet whether you're rich or not. And so it's amazing how these things work. And God, knowing the heart, knows what will happen. So if he gives someone a blessing, right, and it is intrinsically a blessing, like enough to eat, enough wealth, enough gold and silver, gives him a blessing. But he knows that they're reprobate. He knows thereby he's hardening. Even though he hasn't directly led them to destruction, he's given them exactly what would, be, what would harden them. 
So that's about how I see a more indirect activity of God. The thing itself was a blessing and should have been seen that way, but it wasn't used that way and it ends up hardening them. In the end, it's a very complex process, hard to know, but it's going on all over the world. All right. Uh, we're out of time. Um, uh, we have a lot more to do. So how is God uh, glorified in vessels of mercy? And then when does the display happen concerning the vessels of wrath? So when does it happen? When do the, you know, when do the elect fully see the whole story with the reprobate? Heaven, not just judgment day, but for all eternity, observing and understanding the stories of the damned, right? And God's justice in dealing with them. And that's what I argue in my book on heaven that I think God doesn't hide these things from his children, but if there's a vindication of the justice of God, and we'll see that next time, but I think we see that in the parable of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, as Abraham looks down on the rich man in hell and just says, remember that you had your good things and all that, there is that sense of observation and understanding of the story. And we'll talk more about that next time. All right, Andy, would you mind closing us in prayer? Father, we want to thank you that you, your attributes are on display. Father, it's, a, it's your glory. Um, we thank you for that. I pray that you would increase our confidence in you, our trust in you, our belief in you. And I pray also that this a study, as we just have studied in Romans, uh, Lord, it would bring us to a greater, just incredible awe that you would rescue us, that you would uh, choose to... Uh, open our eyes to the truth of who you are. So we thank you for that. Um, and I pray that you continue to work in our hearts a greater portion of Jesus. Amen.